continuing in our uh, series in Ephesians, and uh, this morning our portion is taken from chapter 4, verses 17 to 24. It's Ephesians chapter 4, beginning at verse 17. This I say, therefore, and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind, And put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. And Father, we recognize what a challenge it is every time we come to your word. Because we recognize that it is not the word of of a man. But it is your word. It is your truth. And when we are exhorted by it, we are exalted, exhorted by Almighty God. And when we are convicted by it, we are convicted by your Holy Spirit. And when we are encouraged, and when we read a promise, and when your love shines through, these two come from you and not just another person. We thank you for that. Your word is high and lifted up. It is exalted above every other word. And we ask now that your Holy Spirit will perform his great office as our teacher and instruct us in a manner fitting with this text, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, In his book, uh, The Great Divorce, C.S. Lewis tells the story of uh, one of the characters who is tormented by a red lizard who lives on his shoulder. And the lizard uh, represents indwelling sin, the kind of indwelling sin that we all face, and it mocks the young man all the time, just mocks him. And then this angel comes along, this angel basically says, "I'll, I'll take care of that that lizard for you, and the young man begins to think, wow, life without the lizard on my shoulder, squawking in my ear, mocking me the rest of my life, that sounds pretty good. And then he begins to recognize that what the angel is saying is that he's going to have to kill it. And he notices that the angel just kind of glows with this, this unbelievable heat. So the young man begins to backpedal a little bit, and he says, well, he says, you know, um, maybe it's not necessary for the lizard to actually die, or or maybe we could uh, do this at a later time. The angel isn't so easily put off. 
Then the lizard gets into it because he's beginning to recognize the danger that he's in. He tries to unsettle the young man and and, and begin to see doubts in his mind and suggestions that any of us know when evil whispers in our own ears trying to sustain its presence in our lives. The lizard says this. He says, be careful. He says, the angel can do what he says. He can kill me. One fatal word from you and he will. Then you'll be without me forever and ever. It's not natural. How could you live? You'll only be a a sort of a ghost, not a real man as you are now. He, He doesn't understand. He's only a cold, bloodless, abstract thing. It may be natural for him, but it isn't for us. I know there are no real pleasures now, only dreams, but they're better than nothing, aren't they? And I'll be so good. I admit I've sometimes gone too far in the past, but I promise I won't do it again. I'll give you nothing but really nice dreams, all sweet and fresh and almost innocent. I love those last two words, almost innocent. Because that is just the way we justify our own sin and undo our spiritual health. We have these things that, well, they don't seem too bad. You know, they're just a little off, but it's okay. Everybody else does it too. And besides that, if I was perfect, I wouldn't really be human, would I? It can't be perfect. That's for crazy legalists and and wackos. Besides that, I understand the grace that's ours in Jesus Christ. God will forgive me. And, And I just won't let it go quite so far next time. I mean, that's what we say to ourselves. That's what we do. And when we think like that, we choose to let our lizards live. We convince ourselves that the remnants of sin in our lives aren't really that dangerous. The almost innocent is, well, dare I say it, safe enough. We'll let those stay. But Paul says that nurturing such lizards is actually just the opposite. It is absolutely deadly to the joy of the Christian life, to living with a clear conscience, and to being the men and women God has called us and requires us to be. Last week we saw that God has given each member of the church, everyone that he has called into the body of Christ, gifts or at least a gift, in order to contribute to the body's maturity, its edification, and its carrying out of his work in the world. And now he begins to talk about some of the first things that have to take place, not only within the individual life, but within the corporate life of the body itself, for the purposes of God to move forward with power and maturity, and that is that we live the way we're supposed to live as the people of God. And he defines it here really basically in two sections. The first is a warning. It doesn't seem like a warning when you read it. But as we come to it, you'll see that it is. But it's a warning. 
Then in the second section, in verses 20 to 24, he gives us an exhortation, both of which we need. We'll begin with the warning, verses 17 to 19. Now, I, I want to talk about a different lizard for a minute. Most of you are familiar with them. Okay, if you've ever watched television in the last couple of years and seen the Geico commercials, you know the gecko lizard, right? And the gecko lizard is a very friendly little fella, I guess. And, uh, you know, he he goes through all these little uh, shenanigans with the people that he's uh, integrating and working with. um, You know, he just, he looks very personable and and funny and cute and all that stuff. Um, But the simple fact of the matter is that that's not what real lizards are like, are they? I mean, real lizards, you know, they, they can watch what we do. They eat, they breed, they reproduce. They do what lizards do. But they're not like us. Okay, they, they have no sense of the eternal or the infinite. They have no, no value system by which to judge what's beautiful or ugly. They don't think about meaning and purpose in life. There's a certain deadness to them. A certain lizard life, if you will, that they have that is not a part of ours. See, their understanding can extend beyond their experiences or their biological urges. That's all they know. They're lizards. Now, as as we read what Paul is saying here, we expect that to be true of lizards. If a lizard is a lizard, then he just doesn't have this other understanding. The problem is, is he's not just talking about lizards here. He's talking about people. The language that Paul uses in the very first verse should really startle us. It sounds like it's speaking about unbelievers, strictly. But it's not. He is commanding believers with these words. Listen to what he says. This I say, therefore, and affirm together with the Lord that you, the Ephesian Christians, that you no longer which means they're doing it now, no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. In other words, it's entirely possible for Christians at some level to live just like unbelievers. They can do that. They can live, if you will, a lizard life. A life in which they have just stopped thinking about The eternal God who has called them into fellowship with himself, saved them from their sins, and called them to a different life. They can put it on the shelf and go around just worried about this, doing that, enjoying such and such. But the transcendent values and ideas and all the other things of, uh, of the Christian life, they leave behind. Paul tells us that all this flows from a darkened heart, a hardened heart. It's really interesting. You notice he doesn't say it's a hard heart, right? We're familiar with the hard heart of Ezekiel, a heart of stone. That's a hard heart. But he says it's hardened. And in fact, the Greek word is really interesting because what it does is it it talks about and implies a certain stubbornness. It reflects the consequences of, of making repeated choices 
to resist change. In other words, what happens is that when the opportunity comes to to return, to be softened, to, to repent, if you will, whatever it happens to be, this person repeatedly chooses not to do so. And in doing that, begins to callous their own hearts towards the things of God. It is, as it were, a sclerosis of the heart. It is a true hardening of the heart. And it is quite possible for a Christian to do this, to sear their conscience, to harden their hearts towards the things of God, which they know to be true, simply by rubbing up, if you will, these almost innocent choices again and again and again and again. And I don't think there's anybody in this room who doesn't know what I'm talking about. This is what we do. That's why Paul is warning us as Christians. For instance, let's say you're angry or embittered against somebody, or something. And every time it comes to you, you know, God doesn't want me to be like this. Instead, you decide you're just going to, you're going to keep it alive. You're going to justify staying angry, justify not forgiving, justify your, your grumbling and complaining. And maybe it doesn't come out verbally, maybe you just keep it all inside, but you keep the flame going. And you do that again, and again, and again, and pretty soon you don't care. You are embittered, and you don't want to be anything but embittered, because that's what you've made yourself to be. You see, when we make these almost innocent choices, and by that I mean choices that somehow we can justify in our own minds is okay, but in fact we know, according to Scripture, they are not. When we can make those almost innocent choices, they callous us again and again and again, a little at a time. A little at a time, just the same way the ocean wears away a stone. A little at a time. But it goes the same place. And what Paul says is that when that happens, it's not just that the heart becomes hardened, he goes on to say, but the mind itself grows dull. Grows dull to the things of God. And we cease to care about the condition that we're in. And one of the other consequences, he says, is that basically a deadening of our senses. We are insensitive to others, to God's concerns, to people's pain, to people's exhortation and rebuke of us, whatever it happens to be. In fact, we look at the world around us. We look at people like, you know, Ted Bundy, the Killing Fields, Casey Anthony. We say, how in the world did they get to be like that? The same choices, again and again. And again, deadening their hearts, darkening their minds, insensitizing them to the things of God. 
And the state of that soul makes it possible, Isaiah says, to call evil good and good evil, and to put darkness for light and light for darkness. Just flip everything on its head. See, when the path we're on is not God's path, our normal desires, if we're trying to fulfill them outside of God's way, they will not satisfy and when they don't satisfy, well, then we, we, we just go to a greater extreme to try and get the jazz, to try and make it feel good, to try and get the fulfillment, to try and make it work. And when that doesn't happen, we find ourselves more insensitive to it, and so we've got to get a bigger jolt. Talk to any drug addict. Ask them where they started. And where they ended up. The jolts only needed to be this big when they started. Pretty soon it's this much. And then it's this much. But it's not that it's just drugs. It can be power. It can be prestige. It can be manipulation. It can be anger. It doesn't matter what it is. It's all the same. And we're seeking some sort of desire to be satisfied. And it doesn't come in the form that we think is enough, we go back again and again and again. And all that does is create greater and greater insensitivity within our own souls. Why is it that we need these warnings? (laughs) Because there are so many almost innocent choices that we are faced with every single day in our relationships, at the office, at the mall, on television, in the newspaper, listening to your iPod, driving down the road. I don't care where you go. They're everywhere. There's little choices that we have to make. And we can blow them off and say they're not all that important. But they are. Because they mount up. And eventually they will create the kind of sclerosis of the heart that Paul says is ultimately deadly for our souls. Well, Paul now moves in verses 20 to 24 to exhort us to live to the, up, the, up to the new life that uh, we are to have as Christians. He says, basically, be what you are. In order to be what you are, you have to cast off what you're not anymore. The Puritans used to call it mortification. Well, mortification means to kill, of course. You have to mortify the old man, mortify the flesh. That's not nearly as easy as it sounds because the things of the flesh were so much a part of us that getting rid of them isn't nearly as easy as it sounds. That's why the red lizard in C.S. Lewis gets such a hearing from the young man. He starts talking in that kid's ear, and the, and the kid is thinking, you know, he's, he's probably right. If I, if I get rid of the lizard, well, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure I'm going to know who I am. That means, that almost sounds sort of silly in some ways, but you know something? We are as identified with our sinful patterns and our sinful thoughts as we are with any other thing about ourselves. 
And the moment we say we are willing to set those things aside, that part of our identity has to die. And then we don't know who we are. We haven't discovered the new yet. And that is threatening to people. Well, if I don't do this any longer, uh, will my friends like me? Who's going to, you know? And on it goes. And that makes it hard to give up. Yet the real orientation, the reorientation that Paul talks about, this new attitude of mind, he says that it actually makes us like God in true righteousness and holiness. In other words, it's not that Paul's just saying, get rid of your old identity. He says, you get rid of that and don't worry, there's a new one coming that is far better and far more satisfying and that really will enrich you and cause you to be the person that you're meant to be. Now, Paul tells us this because you and I are are just as prone as he was or anyone else in that day to somehow think that the, the patterns of our own sin, the things that we see in ourselves, make us think we're still enslaved to those things. Temptation comes along, seems really powerful. We say, oh, how can I really be a Christian if I, if I feel this, if I think this, if I want to do this? Well, because it dwells the flesh, Paul tells us in Romans 7. The old man still has some power, but he doesn't have power to drag us back into the crypt with him. It's true that Christians can, if they want, crawl into the coffin with the old man. Right? You can go back to your sin, just the way a dogger turns to its vomit. You want to go back to your old way of life? You can do that. But if you do, you'll get burned. You surely will get burned. And what Paul says is that we therefore should not allow our temptation to somehow convince us that we're enslaved to the old nature. Because we're not. He says, that's not the way you learned Christ. And then he starts to talk about what that actually means. And essentially what he says is this. When you became a Christian, something fundamentally changed in you. You didn't change it. God made the change. And when that changed, you became new in a way that you can't even begin to fathom. That's why he says, because that is the case, put off that old life, those things that still try and cling so close, as the writer of Hebrews tells us, and put on the new. Because that's who you really are. Scripture teaches us, and so does experience, I think, that no one has ever succeeded in just sort of laying aside the old self and all of its wickedness at one fell swoop. Now, the people who are the holiest in this world are the people who fight it every single day, every incident, every time it comes around, it doesn't mean that they win everyone. doesn't mean that they're always successful. But they don't quit. And they don't give up. And they seek, to the best of their ability, not to just go through life laissez-faire, not worried about the, the innocent things, and instead take them very seriously. 
The problem is, of course, is that, well, the old self is so comfortable, so familiar. You go to your closet or your dresser, what clothes do you, you grab first if you want to put, put something on and be relaxed? Do you uh, grab a, a nice white starched shirt, pants like a, a pair of Carhartts that hasn't been washed yet? No, you, you grab an old baggy pair of jeans that you've been, you know, you've been wearing for five years, finally broken in, throw on a t-shirt and you're good. Right? You put on what's comfortable, what's familiar in it, and it just hangs so natural. Okay? Well, that's, that's the way our old life is. Some of it just, it just hangs so natural. It's just, in fact, it's, it's so natural that sometimes we forget it's there. And the Spirit of God has to come and remind us, hey, that's wrong. And then Paul says, we need to be made new in the attitude of our minds. In other words, we can't effectively take off the old and put on the new until our thinking changes. This is right in line with what he says in, in Romans 12, 2. He says there, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. There's a, a British psychiatrist uh, by the name of uh, Giles Croft. He was from the Uni- University of Leeds. and He was doing a study, and he was, wanted to find out whether or not people who, uh, who really experienced the Monday blues uh, talked themselves into it because it was, you know, just what they did or whether it was a real phenomenon. And so um, he designed an experiment. He divided a, a group of people up into three groups. The first group, he gave them all a document that said Monday blues really exists. It's a real problem. The second group, he gave them an academic paper that said there's absolutely no foundation at all for the Monday blues. It's a bunch of hogwash. The third group, he didn't give them anything to read. Well, guess what the results were? Group number one, the group that got to read about how uh, Monday blues were such a real uh, existing problem, tended to have more Monday blues than anybody else. And his conclusion fell out from that, I think, quite naturally. And he simply said that how people expect to feel affects how they do feel. How people expect to feel affects how they do feel. In other words, what you believe is crucial. And it's crucial in, in whether or not how, it's how you uh, feel, what you end up becoming. What you think about who you are and about what reality is all about affects everything. That's why renewing our minds with the teaching of Scripture is so utterly essential. And it's not like you can do it once. Because, well, how many times do you have to hear the same thing again and again and again from Scripture? To remember it. You have to, you have to be told repeatedly. You have to read it repeatedly. Because we are so prone to forgetting it. It just 
passes over us. Oh yeah, it strikes us maybe for a few minutes, but then it's gone. And that's why repeated exposure to the word of God is so essential. Finally, Paul says there's this putting on of the new self. He says, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Well, the simple fact of the matter is, is that we've had this since we've been Christians, right? The very moment we were regenerated, we had this new person, this new, this new self. It's not something that we've created. The old self has been there since we were born physically. But this new self came into existence when we were born again. Our task, however, is to make sure that what we are in this, in this new self, if you were, continues to be reinforced by the way in which we try and act and carry out our lives. And that means it's more than just putting off the old. In other words, if I'm, if I'm angry, okay, if I have a temper, it's not enough for me just to set aside my temper and, uh, and not explode and be a jerk. That's not enough. It means that I also have to put on kindness and gentleness, love and patience. It's not enough to put off my temper. But I have to put on the fruit of the Spirit as well. It's not enough, for instance, for me to do, not do anything, uh, as, as Paul says in Philippians uh, 2, from selfish or empty conceit. It's not enough to just stop doing that. Notice what he says right after. He says, I must with humility of, re- of mind regard others as more important than myself. I must not merely look out for my own interests, but for the interests of others. In other words, it's not enough just to stop being the old self. There is the new to embrace and to seek God's kindness to to see flourish in our lives. So there's a certain responsibility we have to, if you would, dress ourselves as the new men and women of God that we are. We must, to the best of our ability, be who we are. We actually are. On July 30th, in 1945, a, a heavy cruiser was headed across the Pacific, and it had just deposited its uh, its load of uh, enriched uranium at a uh, at a secret location in the uh, in the Pacific Islands. It was uh, the name of the ship was the Indianapolis, and on its way back to the United States, it was torpedoed. And, uh, and it sank really quickly. In the first uh, 12 minutes, uh, 300 men died. And uh, within the next few, 900 more went into the ocean. And they went in, many of them grotesquely wounded. And they went in without, without water, without uh, protection from the sun, and without anything to protect them from the sharks. And the, uh, the, I'm not going to tell you the most gruesome part of that story. Uh, some of you probably already know it. But the chief medical officer, a fellow by the name of uh, Lewis Haynes, was one of the survivors. And he reported this. He says, when the hot sun came out and we were in this crystal clear water, you were so thirsty you couldn't believe it wasn't good enough to drink. The real young ones, they would drink the salt water and would go fast. I can remember striking men who were drinking salt water to try to stop them. They would get dehydrated, then become very maniacal. 
There were also mass hallucinations. It was amazing how, any, how everyone would see the same thing. One man would see something and then everyone else would see it. Even I fought the hallucinations off and on, but something always brought me back. This is precisely what Paul is saying to us in these verses here. He says, there's a, there's a great temptation for us to drink the salt water of the almost innocent choices of life. As if, you know, just a little bit will be all right. But what it does is it produces a thirst that ultimately kills us because we don't stop. We continue to become hardened and insensitive and it goes on and on and on. The antidote to that, he says, is to drink of the living water, Jesus Christ, and to take to yourself the refreshment of his truth and of the working of his spirit, the fellowship of the brethren, and to know that there is no deeper satisfaction that you will ever experience in this world than to be the man or woman of God he has told you to be as you leave the old life behind and put on the new. Let's pray. And Father, we thank you so much for uh, uh, the word and its, uh, its compelling uh, truth. We pray that you would not allow us to, uh, in any way, continue to um, uh, be tempted by those almost innocent choices. And we wouldn't justify them any longer, but call them what they are and resist them with, with all the strength that you give us. Knowing, Lord, that it is, uh, it is in the little things like that that ultimately uh, we can either be undone or become, in resisting, the men and women of God you've called us to be. We ask that you would help us in this. You know how uh, habitual we are. You know how easily uh, fickle we are. We can make a, a choice one day and, and give it over the next. Lord, we need you to sustain us in, a, in the discipline and the uh, discipleship of a long journey in the same direction. And in that, Lord, to find... Uh, a deep contentment in this life. For we ask it in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.